0: You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. So this morning, we are going to jump back into our series, Through the Life of David. We've got about four weeks left and so that is where we will be this morning. But this is one of the reasons why we teach the way we do. We typically will pick books of the Bible, or in this case, it's been two books of 1 and 2 Samuel. and We will walk through that. And what it does, it forces us to kind of teach passages that maybe we would want to skip over, that maybe we would think, oh, that's not really important, or, well, that's too hard, let's not deal with that. And today's kind of like that. It's a passage, it's not a feel-good type of message, but all Scripture is God-breathed and is good and is for our correction, for our teaching, and so we want to teach the whole counsel of God. So we're in the life of David. We've seen David and Samuel. We've seen David and Saul, the very famous David and Goliath, David and his Saul's son Jonathan, and that connection those young men had. David and his first wife, Michael. David and Mephibosheth, the hard-pronounced name, son of Jonathan. We saw David's crash and burn with Bathsheba. We saw David and Bathsheba's wife, Uriah. And you remember that crazy situation where the ark is coming and Uzzah reaches out and touches the ark and God kills him? We saw that one. Last week, we saw David and the prophet Nathan. But remember, this study of 1 and 2 Samuel is not just about learning some more historical facts about David. Our study through this, it is about David, but more importantly, it's about David's God. And that's why we have been studying these books. And so we will look at another event in the life of David this morning, but hopefully it will reveal more and more about who his God is. So I want to invite you to 2 Samuel. We're going to cover three chapters. You go ahead and turn to chapter 13. We'll kind of begin there. Uh, I'll quickly tell 13 and 14, and then we'll slow down for chapters 15. But as you're doing that, finding 2 Samuel 13 through 15, You know, we've all experienced the reality of what we're going to see this morning. No matter how old you are, how young you are, you've experienced what we're going to see today on some form. So it's kind of like this spectrum. What we're going to look at today, there are experiences that you have done, you have endured, and you kind of left you with something to laugh about. Maybe even something hilarious has been the result. Then more in the middle of the spectrum, what we'll talk about are some things that happened. Maybe it made you feel a little uncomfortable, maybe a little embarrassing, but you learned, you lived, and you made it past it. But on the other end of the spectrum, there are some experiences that have been painful and totally heartbreaking. In fact, some of you are experiencing some of those right now. And what we're going to look at today is the idea of consequences. Every single choice we make, it has a consequence. So ladies, I'm going to pick on you first. So uh, sometimes you make a choice and you have lived on and the only thing that's left is maybe a picture. And so if you grew up in the 80s, you remember this, you know, made a choice, you endured it, but you know what? There's only a picture, no harm, no foul, even with the laser background. I mean, that's just classic. But now, men, I hear the mustache is coming back. And so some of you may choose to do something. You make a choice, and your children are going to make fun of you for the rest of your life, unless you can destroy all evidence. And kids, I'm sorry, but, you know, we didn't grow up in the age when our parents had phones, and they could post something immediately to all their friends and family. You just live in a difficult time. Your stuff's being shown to everybody about these moments. But some choices... Kind of have a more lasting effect, and you have to be real careful. You know, if you get a tattoo, make sure your artist can spell, because that's going to stay with you probably until you can either get it corrected or Jesus comes back, something like that. And then you know we all, many of us, live in the issue of parenting. And you're going to make choices that are not going to affect just you, but are going to leave a lasting impression on your children. We just hope that they don't remember all of them. You know, start giving to their counseling fund now for when they get older, and they'll be sad. But we've all made choices. We all make choices, and every single one of them comes with consequences. In fact, I saw a young lady this week. Met her on Grande. She learned the consequence of not or making sure that your car has oil in it. There she is on Broadway, engine completely locked up, and she just kept ignoring that light that said hey check your oil there's consequences to our choices but sometimes they're short-lived you know it's nothing left but a picture but other times they have a much more lasting effect and i would venture to say that all of us you probably bear on your body somewhere now don't start showing everybody but you bear on your body somewhere scars of past choices told Marcus I was going to show this, but he learned that, listen to mama, that you don't come running through the house when the kitchen floor has just been mopped, or you could fall and hurt yourself in seven, eight stitches later, but every time he sees that or every time he thinks about that, he's going to remember, oh yeah, mama said, don't run in the kitchen when the floor is wet, because our bodies bear the scars of those choices. But on a much more serious note, There are sometimes major, and I mean life-altering experiences that we have. That we make choices, and there are consequences that affect us, and even all of those around us. But I hope this, I hope we are a church that are filled with a group of people, that people would say, man, that is a group of grace. Meaning, they've experienced grace, and they show other people grace. I hope that's what we are known for. But I want you to hear me say, God's grace, meaning His ability and His desire to forgive, is greater than all your sin. Not just your biggest sin, but all of your sins. God's grace is big enough for all of it. But I think sometimes we can have a mindset, to fall into an incorrect mindset that says or believes that if God truly is gracious, if God really does forgive, then I won't have to endure the consequences of my choices. If I'm really sorry enough, then I won't have to pay for that. God will forgive me. And we can equate forgiveness and grace with the removal of consequences. But that's just not true. In fact, Galatians 6-7 tells us, Do not be deceived. God will be not mocked. Whatever one sows, one will also reap. In fact, to put it another day, every day of your life, you are saying yes to things and you are saying no to things. And there will always be a harvest for your yeses and a harvest of your noes. So the truth is, God does not always remove the consequences from us. Sometimes we have to bear the scars of our choices. But those scars are in and of themselves forms of God's grace. Because they remind us this is how dangerous sin really is. So today we're going to look at another relationship with David. We're going to look at David and his son Absalom. And this is what we'll see today. It's kind of a threefold thing. First of all, it's not life-shattering, but it's true that sin has consequences. And we're going to see that today. We'll also see that grace does not always remove the consequences of our choices. And hopefully, we will believe that consequences are gracious reminders of just how dangerous sin really is. So we left off two weeks ago in 2 Samuel chapter 12 where Nathan confronts David about his sin with Bathsheba. And he used this story, remember the rich man, all the lambs and goats that he could possibly want, he had herds. But there was a poor man that had the one family lamb that he raised himself. And the rich man stole that, and and Nathan used that to teach David that, no, David, that's actually you. But the great thing is that David admitted a sin. David asked, for, and he found forgiveness. But that does not mean that God always removes or withholds the consequences. So you're there in chapter 13. Let me kind of quickly recap that. Now, we'll try to make this appropriate for all audiences because it's a... Uh, It's a a difficult passage. There's some scenes in here. But here's what happens. There's a man named Amnon. Amnon's one of David's sons. And let's just say he develops inappropriate feelings for his half-sister Tamar. And he confides in a friend about these feelings. And he knows they're wrong. and So he goes to a, a friend named Jonadab. And Jonadab comes up with a plan. He says, hey, here's what we do. Act like you're sick. Tell David you want her to make you a meal. She'll bring it to you. Dismiss everybody. And that's kind of how the story goes. But I want to stop here for a minute. And I want to speak to our kids and even our teenagers. And listen, you will make bad choices. You are going to sin. You're going to make the wrong decision sometime. How do I know this? It's because you come from sinful parents, and they did that too. But you're going to make mistakes. But one of the things you see is that the most important thing you can do is make sure that you choose your friends wisely. Because you know what? You want to be around people that are going to push you to make the right choices. And you need to be the type of friend that is going to do that to other people Because Amnon confides in a friend, and they dig themselves a huge hole. So here's what happens. Inappropriate things happen between Amnon and his half-sister Tamar. What's really interesting is he had these really strong feelings, and when he fulfills and he goes through with this sin, it says that his love for her turned to hate. You know, sin's like that. I mean, sin will look attractive. It, It promises all this joy and happiness. But then you go through it and you find yourself and it leaves you empty and miserable. So, Tamar has a brother named Absalom. Absalom hears about this and for two years he plots a plan. And finally, he kills or he has Amnon killed. So, Absalom in chapter 13 flees for Gesher. So, then in chapter 14, it's all about Absalom's return to Jerusalem. The city where David is, the ark is there, it's the the center of the Israelite life. And Absalom finally is able to return to Jerusalem. But for two years, David will not see him. So Absalom, he comes on the service, he wants a relationship with his father again. Absalom asks a friend named Joab to speak to the king. Joab refuses. So what does he do? Absalom burns his fields to the ground. So finally, Joab says, okay, I'll go speak to the king. And then there's this reunion between David and his son Absalom. And if you've ever had a wayward child or you've been that wayward child, you can probably relate to what this reunion was like. It's this moment of reconciliation they embrace. David kisses him. Absalom bows down, and it sounds like the beginning of a great, you know, happy rest of your life kind of thing. But in fact, it's just the opposite. So we will now pick up to notice what Absalom does once he's back in the grace of the king, beginning in chapter 15, verse 1. After this, so after these events, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses, and 50 men to run before him. So what in the world is he doing? Well, Absalom's wanting people to look at him in a certain light. He wants to impress people when they see the chariots coming. He wants to feel and wants to be noticed as someone important. He wants to be viewed as royalty. So Absalom, he's creating this image that he wants people to have of him. So then in verse 2, and Absalom, he used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you from? Or, hey, hey, where are you from? And when they said, Your servant is of such and such in the tribe of Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were the judge of the land. Then every man with a dispute or a cause might come to me, and I, I would give him justice. Whenever a man came near and paid homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him, and he would kiss him. Thus Absalom did all of this of Israel, who would come to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the people in Israel. So here's kind of the setting. The city gate was kind of the hub where everything kind of happened. If you were traveling through the land, you would stop at the city gate. You could feed your donkey. You could find rest. Someone might come and invite you into their home. This is where you bring your goods and you would trade at the city gate between other cities. But it's also where you would bring your problems, your your grievances with your neighbor, whoever it might be, you would come. You would then sit down, talk about your case, and then you would get justice or a decision would be made. So Absalom positions himself to intercept the people. Now, he would do several things. First of all, it says that he would find out where they're from. So What's he doing? He's taking interest. Hey, tell me where you're from. Then he'd find out what their problem was, and he's acting like he cares. And then he would validate their claim. He never meets a, a claim that he doesn't agree with. He's like, you're right. Why would they do that to you? need justice. But then he would say, you know what? If I was king, man, if I was king, you would hear, I'd hear your case, and I would rule. I would help you. But then the exclamation point, When people would try to show him honor for caring about them and knowing about them, wanting to help, they would bow down, but he wouldn't let them do it. He would stop them, bring them to stand on their feet, then he would kiss them. He's saying, I'm not worthy. You are the worthy one. And on the surface, this doesn't sound bad at all. I mean, he's taking an interest in people. He, He wants to help them. He doesn't want to be honored above them. But the reason behind all the actions is the important thing. It's in verse 6. It says that he is trying to win the hearts of the people. And this goes on for four years Absalom does this. So Absalom is now ready to move into phase 3 of his plan. And you see it in verse 7. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed for a vow while I lived in Gesher of Aram, saying, if the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. And the king said to him, go in peace. So he arose and he went to Hebron. So under the disguise of worship, a religious activity, he puts his plan into action. When he was in hiding, in Geshur, he made a vow and he said, if I could go back, I will go and I'll make sacrifices to God. And David lets him go. So what is he doing? It's all a part of his plan. And once he is out from under the king's watchful eye, he is finally ready to see his plan come to bow. Look in verse 10. In Absalom, he sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel saying... As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, that'll be the signal. This is what you will say. Absalom is king at Hebron. And Absalom went with 200 men from Jerusalem when they were invited guests. And they went in their innocence, and they knew nothing. While Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he went up to Athephel, the Galionite, David's counselor from the city of Galo. And the conspiracy grew, and the people with Absalom went and kept increasing. So, what do you do? You want to win people's hearts? Act like you care. Get to know them, offer to help them. Then you throw them a huge party. These people had no idea what he was doing. They come, he throws this big party, all a part of his plan to overthrow his father, the king. So, when you heard the trumpet, He had his secret messengers. They all stood up and they started shouting, Absalom is our king. So finally, cat's out of the bag. The plan is in full swing. The word quickly travels back to David. But here's where we see a different side of David. Remember David, the strong king, defeated Goliath, killed a lion and a bear, defeated the Philistines. Not just 100 at one time, but 200 Philistines, Well, notice where you find David. Notice what you see him doing in verse 13. And a messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone with Absalom. And David said to all of his servants who were with him in Jerusalem, Arise, notice, and let us flee. For else there will be no escape from us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servant said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So here you have King David, the successful, the powerful, the fearless king. But we see David running from a fight. But why would David run at this point? Well, I think, first of all, he's getting older. He's in his 60s. I think he's a weakened man, and he's in a divided, weakened kingdom. And he knows there's no way he is going to win or he would be able to sustain a battle with his son. But David also knows the only way for Absalom to become king is by his own death. And so David flees. David flees to Jerusalem. Or flees from Jerusalem. But the scene next is what's really interesting. Skip to verse 13. So from 16 on, there's this procession outside of town. But in verse 30, you see David in a very different light. From sitting on the throne of ruling, leading. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot, and his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. So David is leaving Jerusalem, and he crosses the Kedron Valley uh, to the east, and he makes his way up on the Mount of Olives. And David climbs the Mount of Olives barefooted, his head covered, and he is weeping. So here's the scene. David entered Jerusalem as a powerful and a successful king. But you see him leaving Jerusalem as a broken man in mourning. So what's he mourning? Well, I think there's several things. One, I think he's mourning his son. I think David as a parent is heartbroken. Over the choices that Absalom is making. And I think he's rolling the things over in his minds. Of the thing that he did wrong. How he failed his son. And he's mourning the choices that his son makes. He's also mourning Jerusalem. He loves this city. The center of Israel. The hub of everything. The ark of the covenant is there. And he doesn't want to see this city destroyed. I think David's mourning the people. He loves this people, but he's seeing them divided once again. I think he's mourning his kingdom. The kingdom that God was giving him, and he sees it coming to a downfall. But I think David's also mourning his death. I think he knows that the only way Absalom can take the throne is when the king dies. But this is what I think David is mourning more than anything. When all of this is happening... David is mourning God's words. He is mourning, he is remembering what Nathan told him in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 11. When he was confronted with the sin of Bathsheba, Nathan looked him right in the eye as the king, and he said, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will rise up evil against you out of your own house. And this is one of the clearest accounts of the consequences of sin we have in all of the Bible. That David, evil will rise from your own house, your own family against you. Now I believe David, above all, is mourning the consequences of his sin. And he knows he's the one that brought this about. That there is coming a day of reckoning. I don't know if you've ever read much of Robert Louis Stevenson. It's an author that says it this way. Everyone sooner or later sits down to the banquet of consequences. So sin, it has consequences. And grace doesn't always mean those consequences will be withheld. In fact... Consequences can be gracious reminders of just how dangerous sin really is. And I believe David never forgot that. So what we have is another snapshot in the life of David. One that isn't just about David, it's about David's God. And one of the things I think we see is that we see how powerful God is. That God used the sin, the deceitfulness, and even the rebellion of Absalom... To bring about his own promises. That God is so much more powerful than sin. That God can use sin to accomplish his purposes. But we also see God being gracious. That grace doesn't always remove the consequences. God leaves them there. And David is an example. That God is allowing and using the consequences to remind David. And everyone around him, even Absalom. Of just how dangerous sin can be. So, man, when we read through these examples of David's life, even in this one, I think there's so many things that we can take away. I think one is just that great reminder of Amnon and and Jonadab in chapter 13 of how important it is to surround ourselves with people that are going to push us towards the things of Christ. You know what? Then that makes us even stronger to reach the world around us. But we also need to be the type of friends that others need. But the biggest lesson of all I think we see is that our choices matter. Listen, we talk about grace a lot around here. I hope we do. But grace doesn't mean that the consequences of sin are always removed. We cannot minimize sin. If you are irritable and you are hurtful and you are distant from your spouse, you know what happens? Over time, that will do almost unrepairable damage. The words, the attitudes towards our children. Listen, I'm convicted about this. Men, they can either breathe life into our children or they can breathe death. Our choices have consequences. If you compromise your integrity and you begin, oh, it's something small, you will end up in a place of doing great damage to your business, your reputation, and even your church. And if we think we can kind of handle and we can kind of manage and we can control those secret sins that we all deal with, it's only a deadly illusion, and we will end up addicted and enslaved to sin. So here's the truth. Sin has consequences. And yes, you run to God for grace and forgiveness, but it doesn't mean that he will always withhold the consequences. Many times they are gracious reminders, those scars that we bear, of just how dangerous sin really is. So I have one final thing I want to show us about this part of David's life. You know, we've been studying David's life and walking through these chapters, through these books, but it's not just to learn more about David. It's meant to direct us to someone else. In fact, David all throughout this is pointing us To another king. In fact in Matthew 23 and Luke 19. You actually see another king standing on the very same Mount of Olives. And you know what you see that king doing in those chapters? You see him weeping. Like David. But he isn't weeping over his own sin. Because he had none. That king is weeping over the people that he's watching over that are struggling with sin. He's weeping over the people that he knows will reject them. He's weeping over us. But that king will make his way down that Mount of Olives and he will climb another mountain. And he will bear scars in his hands and his feet and on his side. But they are not scars that he deserves. They are wounds that were meant for us. But he endured those scars so that we would not have to. So as we think of David, I hope that we close with Jesus, the other weeping king in mind. That sin is something to be taken seriously. Sin is never your friend. It is your mortal enemy. And may God help us. May he help us to see how dangerous and deadly and destructive sin is. That he would help us to confess those places in our lives where sin is trying to take hold. And that we would run to Jesus to receive the forgiveness. So sin has consequences. You know what? Grace doesn't always remove them. And when God doesn't, when there are consequences, they're always gracious reminders of just how dangerous sin is.